Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 26. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the word of God. Normally, we would, uh, we would be in our series in Ephesians. Uh, we're taking a brief break. So if you're coming here to hear Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 5, you're in for a little bit of a surprise. But uh, it's not too far off from what we've been saying um, because we do get to see the meaning of the church in this passage. It's a wonderful passage. And we're going to dig right into this and then share in the Lord's Supper together. You know, Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 to 26, it's one of those revealing passages where Jesus Christ teaches us about what it means to find ourselves. Now, that's a very common phrase in our, in our modern or postmodern language today. Notice in verse 25, Jesus doesn't say, whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. That's not what he says. The NIV translation that you're reading is not misinterpreting what Jesus says there. In the Greek, mainly what Jesus says is, whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Find what? The Greek word there is psyche. What Jesus is saying is you will find your real self. It's where we get the word psychology. You will come to know your real self. You will come to experience the realest part of your soul. Jesus is saying this, I'm going to give you the answer, the key to finding your real self, your true self. Connect with who you really are. You know, today there's no greater urgency. There's no greater urgent modern issue. Ernest Becker He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. And uh, he wrote a book, an earlier book, called uh, The Birth and Death of Meaning. And, and there, in that book, he says this, Most of our lives are in large part a rationalization of a failure to find out who we really are, what our basic strength is, what thing it is that we were meant to work upon the world. 
That's Ernest Becker. In other words, the majority of lives, the majority in our lives of our lives, there's a disorientation. There's a confusion. That's what drives most of our issues in life, most of our pathologies in life. It's why we're oftentimes angry or afraid. It's we don't know really who we are. We don't know who we are. Becker himself, you know, proclaimed in large part, he was a secular man, says that most of what drives us is this quest to find meaning in our lives, that soulful meaning. Why am I here in the world? And Jesus Christ says, you want to find yourself? Take up your cross and die. Lose yourself. Take up your cross and die. Follow me. So there are three points today we're going to go into. The first It's really like three acts in this passage, and it kind of flows neatly through the narrative because that's how you're supposed to read a story, read a narrative. It's a true narrative. The first is Jesus' praise of Peter. The second is Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Lastly, it's Jesus' teaching to Peter. His praise, his rebuke, his teaching. It's one of my favorite passages. It's actually the passage that brought me to rediscover the gospel. I'm a recovering Pharisee. And uh, it's, one of the, it's the passage, actually, that brought me to rediscover the gospel of Jesus. The first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' praise of Peter. Verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they respond, some believe that you are John the Baptist. Other people believe that you're Elijah. Other people believe you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, his answer is remarkable. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does that mean? What Peter's saying is, you are not just a prophet. All the other prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah, uh, John the Baptist, they pointed ahead to a day of salvation. But not you. You always pointed to yourself. All the other prophets, they teach. And when they teach, at the end they say, thus saith the Lord. You see that all the way through the books of the prophets. Ancient times, rabbis would teach, and after they're done teaching, the elders would gather around, they would listen, they would validate, and they would respond by saying, amen, amen. And that word basically means, I validated, I've heard, I've listened to you, and now I validate, and I can say that this is truth, but not Jesus. Jesus never did that. Jesus always began his teaching with amen. You don't see that in your Bibles. What you see in your Bibles printed over and over is verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, I say to you, I tell you the truth. What he's saying there is, I don't need validation from you. My words have authority. What does that word mean? I am the author. Prophets, they always pointed away to be reconciled to God. Jesus always pointed to himself. He says, no man comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. Prophets pointed to new life. Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he says. So what Peter's saying, his confession, it's a remarkable confession. And Jesus blesses him. Jesus praises him. Verses 17 to 20 says, this could only come from God. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's what he says. And then he says, on this rock, you are Peter, Petras, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. The word rock here, the Greek word Petra, He's saying, Peter, Petros, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. Now, Roman Catholics and Protestants, they disagree by what Jesus meant when he says that on this rock I will build my church. But whether or not you come from a Roman Catholic background or a Protestant background, it doesn't matter. Both 
agree that if you don't agree with what Peter confesses here, if you don't agree with what Peter believes regarding the true identity of Jesus Christ, you are very, very far from the makings of a foundational faith of a believer, of a Christian. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Jesus says, on this rock, on one hand, what he's saying is, Peter, I'm building on you. On the other hand, he says, you are a rock, not the rock, not Petras. You are a rock. Later, Peter himself explains in his own epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, as you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a temple. What he's saying is the church is made up of living stones. The church is made up of God's people. This is the foundation of the church. What Peter is saying here, this remarkable confession of Peter, your faith, your life, the community that has come together around that, built along and aligned with the cornerstone that is Christ. That's what 1 Peter says. The cornerstone is the stone that is set, the perfect stone that is set on the ground by which all other stones align and are built on top of. Whenever you're building a building, the greater the cornerstone, the more perfect that cornerstone, the more perfectly aligned and built without any blemish or degree is the house. Peter says, you are like living stones built along that cornerstone that is Christ, built up into a spiritual house of God. Jesus Christ, I want to say this, wait, every other religion, every other religion, the leader says, you want salvation? Here's how you do it. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to work up to God this way. You got to work up to God that way. That's their cornerstone. But the thing is, that always relies on you. What you do, and the thing is, we all know. Why is there a deep insecurity in our hearts? It's because we know that we cannot live that way all the time. And so that house, if relying on us, would have blemishes. It would be broken. It would not be able to rise up in its holiness, in its perfection as God demands. But Jesus Christ is the only leader that says salvation is not by your doing. Salvation is not by your trying. Salvation is by your receiving. Salvation is a gift. Jesus says, I came to strive. I came to do. I came to work so that you would receive. Until you get that, you're not in the church. You're not a Christian. That's the meaning of the church. There's the power to grow. Jesus says, on this, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. We're going to go word by word here. One, he says, I will build my church. Jesus Christ is the builder. Your gifts are not what builds his church. Your talent is not what builds his church. Surrender to the work of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ. Because if you don't, there's the sense of frustration and the way we pick on other people for what they don't do, what they're not able to do. Jesus says, I will build my church. What that means is that Jesus has chosen to build his church through you. The work is not finished. Don't be discouraged by the things that you see in the church that are ugly and nasty. It's not finished. You ever see a building as it's being built? Is it beautiful? It's broken. 
It looks unfinished. There is a mess everywhere. It's always messy. He says, I will build my church. The work is not finished yet. Trust in the work of Christ. Three, he says, I will build my church. There's an active, dynamic power that is a work in the church, and it's not your work, and it's not automatic, and that's why it's messy at times. That's why it's not pretty at times. Be patient in trusting the work of Jesus. Four, he says, I will build my church. It is not your church. It is not built on your agenda. It is not built on my agenda. Submit to the word of God. That's why we read the word. That's why we hear God's word. It's not just something we do as a part of a checklist. It binds us together and guides us and leads us. Do you know these prayers of confession that we read together, that we recite, they were written hundreds of years ago, and yet we align to them today because they are aligned with the words of God. That's why we recite them. They aren't the words of God themselves, but they show that the church has not changed. If you, we haven't taken anything away from Scripture. We haven't added anything to Scripture. We are in alignment to God's agenda. It's Christ's church, not ours. Submit to his word. The church is not a social club. The church is not there to fulfill your personal agenda or your desire to build community your way. Lastly, Jesus says, it's my church. I will build my church. That means we are a people called by God. That means the power of God, because God himself, the Trinity, is a community. That means that there was community and love and trust. These things existed before the foundations of the earth. That, that the love of God, that the submission and the reverence and the respect and the honor of God for himself, for the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, were there since the foundations of the earth. And when he created man in his image, what are we saying here? That the best way to experience God, the best way to experience God is in the context of community. That's why we come to worship. That's why we serve together. God has chosen to do an amazing work of advancing his kingdom through broken and feeble sinners like you and me. It's how he's chosen to build his church because he is the cornerstone and he will build his church in alignment with Christ, the merit of Christ, the holiness of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, as we've been talking, Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul says that when we come together as a body, we are in one way experiencing the incomparably great power of God, the working of his mighty strength. And so when we demonstrate the gospel towards one another, this is one of the major ways that we experience the power of God. And here, Jesus himself says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now think about this. A lot of times we live the Christian life as if we are behind the gate and the world is just crashing in and caving in on us. And so we live a very defensive gospel. We live, our lifestyles are very, well, you know, I can't say these things. I've got to be sensitive all the time. And we kind of live enclosed in this as if we are living behind the gates. But that's not what Jesus says here. Now, this is, the times were not different then. We all know that in those times, there was tremendous persecution of Christians because of the pluralistic nature of faith then, very, very similar to our day today. 
a person attending the church then would experience the same fears and insecurities and be challenged to live the same type of life that the modern church today is challenged to live. What Jesus says is, Hades is behind the gate, and we are charging as a body. That means the way you serve, the way you speak truth into one another, the way you demonstrate love in a practical way, the way you develop and come together as a body, it demonstrates the powerful, genuine faith that God will use to build his church and advance his kingdom. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's the culmination of Jesus' praise of Peter. Now, second, he rebukes Peter. It's a very interesting text because this first act, Jesus is filled with praise and blessing, and then he immediately moves into a rebuke because what happens is, as Jesus affirms Peter's confession, he then goes on, now think about this, Anytime when Jesus spoke to morally or socially marginalized people, the poor, the prostitute, he calls them friend. He oftentimes calls them daughter. That's what he says. But to the religious, to the teachers of the law, he was much harsher. He would call them hypocrites. But nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever call anyone what he calls Peter in this passage. He calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. And this immediately after juxtaposing Jesus' praise of Peter. He practically curses Peter, and he he does it in public. And it's very intentional because you would never curse someone like that. Jesus has never cursed anyone like that in the Scriptures apart from this passage, but he does it in public, which means that he wanted people to see it. He wanted this to be a lesson. Peter says what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's saying you are the beauty of God. You are the majestic kingliness of God. You are the king of glory. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, you're blessed that you can say that. You're blessed that you could know that. But what happens next? Verse 20 went on. From from that point on, Jesus presents his plan for restoring the world. And here's here's what he says. He says, basically, the way I'm going to defeat evil is I'm going to suffer. I will be rejected. I will be persecuted. I will be beaten, I will die, and I will be raised to life again. In other words, I will defeat evil, not through my strength, not through physical power and might, but through my weakness. Not through power, but through submission. Not through subversion, but through surrender. Not through my mightiness, but through my brokenness. Peter says, you are the son that the prophet spoke about. But Jesus says, yes, This son is going to suffer. And what Jesus is doing there is for the first time in all the scriptures, he combines two prophecies. The first prophecy of the son of God who is to come into the world and the second prophecy as you see in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would come to redeem the world. And Jesus, for the first time in the Bible, combines those two and says, the son of God is the suffering servant of God. And so in Isaiah 53, we see he would be oppressed. He would be stricken for his people. No one ever combined the son 
and the servant who is suffering together in one voice, in one line, or in one uh, metaphor. But Peter says, Peter says, God delights in you. You are a son. God delights in you. He loves you. And Jesus says, yes, but this son, the one whom God delights in, will be rejected, will be oppressed, will be struck down and sacrificed. In fact, that's why he's delightful, because he sacrificed because he gave up his beauty, because he defeats sin by becoming sin, by becoming the sacrifice, Peter says, no, I will never let this happen to you. And Jesus responds and he says, you are like Satan. Actually, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. The literal word or phrase in the Greek is, you are a temptation to me. You are a temptation. Why does he call him that? In Matthew chapter 4, you have uh, Jesus Christ, he's in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, for 40 days, Satan comes and tempts Jesus three times. And uh, the three temptations are very simple. One, he turned these stones to bread. In other words, I want you to indulge. Jesus, you're hungry. Feed yourself. Indulge. Satisfy yourself. The second was, throw yourself down from this high place. Essentially, God will protect you. Preserve yourself. Protect yourself. Lastly, he says, all this wealth, all the kingdoms of the world, all this power I can give to you. Jesus, fulfill yourself. What what Satan's saying is, you can have all these things. I can give it to you, and you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. All three temptations revolved around the self without suffering. The cross without suffering, without the cross. And each time Jesus says no, he resists. And so when Peter says no, I will not let you suffer, Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Really what he's saying is, you are attempting to do the very thing that Satan was tempting me to do in the wilderness, to become a king without suffering, to be a king without ever going to the cross to save myself and not come to fulfill the mission, which is to save the world. So really, in verse 23, what what Jesus is saying is, don't you dare try to fit me into your own definition of what greatness is. You're not thinking about God because your idea of greatness has no room for suffering, no room for trouble, no room for grief, no room for discomfort, no room for uncertainty. You are not thinking about God. You're thinking about men. Don't you know, Peter? You're thinking about men. The way to victory is through defeat. The way to victory is through sacrifice, through suffering, through humiliation, through death. The essence of Christian maturity is to understand that if the kingdom of God advances through Jesus' suffering and humiliation and death, then he will advance through your suffering and your humiliation and your death. You know, we live in a world today where we're so averse to suffering. We take suffering as a curse. We take suffering as God's absence when it really, the essence of Christian maturity is to understand the presence of God in the midst of our suffering. And when you understand that, Jesus then leads into the next act. He says, then you will find yourself. How do we do that? That leads us to our last point, the teaching. David Brooks He's a famous author, a scholar, a commentator on NPR. He actually lived out in Wayne, PA. 
Uh, I'm not sure if he still does, but I believe that he uh, lived out in Wayne, PA. He wrote a book called The Bourgeois Bohemians, The Bobos in Paradise. And there basically, I'm just going to paraphrase uh, the beginning of the book. Basically, he says, decades ago, in a traditional society in America, if you opened up the New York Times wedding pages, the focus in the wedding pages was on family. So-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the great esteemed son of so-and-so, marries this daughter, who is the daughter of so-and-so, who is the great-great-granddaughter of this great person. David Brooks says today things have shifted 50 years, 60 years later. If you look at the wedding pages in the New York Times today, the focus is not on where you came from, but what you do, where you went to school, what degrees you've earned. In other words, really in that, what David Brooks is saying is there are two ways today in our modern world that we define ourselves. The first way is our traditional, what we call Eastern approach You define yourself through your family. You define yourself through responsibility, duty, loyalty. Your decisions are never your own. And so even if you are unhappy, you never diverge from your family. You never diverge from sacrificing for your family. And so in order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself in your community. That's the traditional approach, the Eastern approach. But the second approach is the modern or postmodern Western approach. It's what we call self-discovery. Indulge yourself. Fulfill yourself. Discover your real potentials at all costs. That is the most important thing. Look to increase your potential and your options and freedom. And if you do, then you will increase your joy. Now, the traditional approach is lose yourself through your duty. The modern approach is Find yourself through your desires. And here, Jesus Christ is saying, I want you to have your identity, but you will never be able to experience your real self apart from me. Verse 25. I'm going to paraphrase verse 25. Mainly what he says is the only way you can find your real self is if you lose yourself for him. Verse 24, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself, lose yourself, take up this cross, and follow me. In other words, build your life around a pattern of my death, and you will then discover who you really are. Look at the cross. Mainly what he's saying is look at the cross and let that shape everything you do. Build your life around a pattern of my death. That's how you will discover who you really are. Look at the cross. Let it shape everything you do. Let it shape everything you're thinking. Let it shape everything you believe. Notice, he doesn't say, just die. Deny yourself and leave it at that. Because then you've completely lost yourself, you see. However, he he also doesn't just say, I suffered so that you would never have to suffer. He doesn't say that either. Jesus Christ suffers that when you suffer, you will learn what it means to be like him. That deep connection, the pain that you experience when you suffer. What Jesus is saying is when you experience that, there you're experiencing what I've experienced on the cross. What you're feeling is what I felt. That pain that you experience in a very, very small way is like the pain that I've experienced on the cross. 
when you see that Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate suffering for you, that's when you realize that Jesus took care of the real guilt. You feel betrayed? Jesus took care of the ultimate betrayal. You feel guilty? Jesus took care of the real guilt. You feel judged at times, condemned? Jesus took care of the ultimate condemnation. Are you suffering right now? Jesus took care of the ultimate suffering, the only suffering that could ever ruin you. And he says, when you come to realize that and you take that pain and the suffering, you're experiencing that and you connect yourself to Christ on his cross, that's what it means to bear your cross, then you will come to understand who you really are. I'm going to give you a couple ways, a couple practical ways of doing this, and then I'm going to show you how you come to see your real self. First, you've got to stop saving yourself when you're suffering. Notice, Jesus does not say, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. He doesn't say that. Stop trying to save yourself. Rather, he says, whoever loses his life for me will find himself. Stop trying to save yourself through your good behavior. Stop trying to save yourself through your good looks. First of all, he's not saying don't be good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying stop trying to use that to define who you are. Stop trying to define yourself by how well, how well dressed you are, how well put together you are, how good looking you are. Stop trying to find yourself through your reputation. Stop trying to identify yourself with your pedigree. That is not what makes you acceptable before God. That's basically what he's saying. You are not called by God because you are qualified. You are qualified by God because you are called. Next, he says, stop trying to be so strong then. The world says you've got to build. You've got to accumulate. You need wealth and power to keep up. But think about it. The most powerful man in the world and the most holy man in the world, the most powerful man in the universe came Why? To gain power? To subvert more? No. He came to give up power. And yet, there was tremendous power. That's when we saw who he really was because he was raised again. Why? Because hope, salvation is not built around your works. That means when you fail, when you fall down, when you are in guilt, when you are suffering, those things become crucibles in your life to make you more like Christ. It's going to make you trust like Christ. It's going to make you humble like Christ. It's going to challenge you to sacrifice like Christ. It's going to challenge you to surrender like Christ. The cross reveals who we really are. You know why? Because when you are challenged to surrender like Christ, when you are challenged to suffer or to submit and trust and be humble like Christ, that's when you realize who you really are. You are not humble like Christ. You are not sacrificing like Christ. You are selfish. We are selfish and broken and afraid and proud and arrogant Guilty, oftentimes deserving of the consequences of our suffering. Oftentimes. I don't want to demean that sometimes we suffer immeasurably and it's not your fault. And yet those things become crucibles for you to learn who you really are because you realize how selfish you are, how proud you are, how resistant we are to God's grace. The cross reveals who you really are. It gives you the most realistic picture of who you are. 
when you look in the cross, on one hand, you see your real self, you see your guilt, and you see all of your guilt. You see your sinfulness, you see all of your sinfulness. It's so big that only Jesus could come and save you. Only Jesus could come and redeem you. On the other hand, when you look at the cross, you see the love of Christ. You see the compassion of Christ. And you realize only Jesus would die for you. Only Jesus would come for you. Until you see how embraced you are by Jesus, you'll never be able to have the courage to look at who you really are, all of your flaws. Unless you, see how, unless you look at the cross and see how embraced you are, how loved you are, you will never be able to see yourself for who you really are. People will come to you, you will always be defensive. You know, one of the things I learned, uh, one of my classes, I remember uh, my professor was teaching me, and, and he, mainly what he said was a very simple thing, but we were talking about our struggle with sin when we are in guilt and how we respond to that guilt. But then on the flip side, uh, he, he was teaching, and he kind of said something. He said, you know, it's not just about how you deal, how the gospel applies to you when you are guilty. It's how you respond when you are not guilty and you are accused of something. Friends, I'm a pastor, and I get accused of things all the time. You are accused of things all the time. How do you receive that and respond? It's a crucible. We submit to a Savior who is accused of all things And yet, he remained silent and humble. It actually revealed his humility. It actually revealed his love. It actually revealed his submission to God. On the cross, he's hung. God himself has forsaken him, and yet he still trusted God. It revealed his trust, his surrender, his submission. When you see your sin, you know, on one hand, it's humbling because that sin, if you see it, it will break you. But when you know that God sent his only son to die for you, there goes the blaming. There goes the excuses. There goes the lying. You are actually denying yourself. That's what it means to deny yourself. You're actually letting, you're denying every impulse to save yourself. You're denying every impulse to be strong. You're denying yourself. And so as a result, what happens is when you do that, you experience what it means to be found in him. You experience what it means to be strong in Christ because my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. You become stronger. You become freer. You become new. You're finding yourself in him. In verse 26, Jesus says, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can man give in exchange for his soul? What he's saying is, if your main pursuit in life is to enjoy a great career, to build your status, to build your wealth, to build your reputation, what the text there is saying is, you are still enslaved. You have lost yourself in those things. Think about it. If you're a man, he says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you have built your life 
on making $500,000 a year and you place your sense of worth in that and then you lose your job in a bad economy where it could take a while for you to work your way back up to that salary again, you've lost yourself, you see. Thing is, you lost yourself not when you lost your job. You lost yourself when you had that job. You understand? That's what happened. You've gained the whole world, and yet you've lost yourself. Jesus says, build your life in a pattern around what I've paid to have you. Let that be your source of worth. Then you can look at anything, any blessing, any suffering, any blessing, you can say, these are good things, but it's not my life. Any suffering, you can say, these are bad things, but it's not my life. And you will learn through the suffering. You know, when the rug gets pulled underneath you, it's going to give you strength. It's going to reveal your joy beneath the suffering. You're going to feel weak. You're going to feel beaten up. You know, the one thing about Christianity is that it doesn't create this kind of immune, almost stale personality. It teaches us to truly grieve with realistic grieving and yet with a tremendous joy that's born from that grieving because we know that it's not the end. It is not the end of the story. It's just another chapter. You understand what I'm saying there? When you're suffering, you can remember Jesus who suffered. You connect with Jesus who suffered. Real suffering. Real suffering is when you can't help yourself. When you're really suffering, it could be sickness, it could be a betrayal, you can't help yourself. You can't save yourself. Real suffering is when you can't save yourself. You're just broken. Ah, but the thing is, the thing is, that's what's going to help you to be free from the things that are really destroying you. The things that you've held onto that are really killing you, really losing your soul, making you sacrifice your soul. And when you come to the cross, you see what Jesus gained in exchange for his soul. Jesus didn't just risk his life for your soul. He exchanged his life, exchanged his identity, exchanged himself. He had the intimate, the most intimate relationship with the Father. The Father delighted in him, and he knew who he was. It defined him. His relationship with the Father was the center of his soul, the center of his life. He had an identity. He had a soul. He had a self. And yet when he came to the earth, Philippians chapter 2 said he emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of all glory. And so on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have lost my job. I have lost my status. I've lost my position. I've ultimately lost and sacrificed my life. My soul has been lost. I've been forsaken by God. Will you plunge your failures and your guilt and your sin on the person of Christ on the cross? When you do that, you will see how imperfect and sinful you are. How beautiful and majestic and kingly Jesus is. How loving and compassionate and gracious is the love of the Father. And when you see that Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate suffering for you, the only suffering that could ever ruin you wholly, it will birth you into a new love for Jesus, a renewed desire to serve him, a humility that is otherworldly, like Jesus, 
a new confidence. Did Jesus ever cower on the cross in his suffering? You will discover amazing new realities of Christ in you, and it will burst you into a new joy. You will be free. You're no longer going to be captivated by the world. You will be resilient. You will view suffering differently. You will respond to suffering differently. You will view your failures differently. God didn't give up on you. He's actually using your failures to to draw you closer to him, so surrender to him. The hardest thing to eat, if you're a proud person, only a proud person would understand this, so let me tell you, right? Uh, the hardest thing to give is in. Come to the table today. It's a place of humility because of our sin. And yet Jesus wanted to show us his love in the context of a feast. That means it's a celebration, you see, because of his work, because of his character. Jesus begins by saying, who do you say I am? So I'm going to end this message with the same question. Who do you say Jesus is for you? Let's pray together.